in the beginning. Those are the famous opening words of the book of Genesis. But they're also more than that. They're more than just an opening phrase. In many ways, these three words are also a summary of the book itself. Because if you think about it, that's really what Genesis is all about, isn't it? This is a book of beginnings. Not only the beginnings of human history, but also the, the beginnings of all that is most central in our lives. Love and beauty, work and family, but also anger and shame, envy, greed. It is in Genesis that we discover the beginnings of God and the ways of God, of sin and redemption, doubt and faith, idolatry and worship. Genesis is a book filled with beginnings. And yet, these beginnings don't just tell us what happened in the past, although they certainly do that. They also tell us the truth about our lives in the present. As the Jewish philosopher Leon Cass once put it, Genesis shows us not so much what happened as what always happens. And by holding up a mirror in which we readers can discover in ourselves the reasons why human life is so bittersweet and why uninstructed human beings generally get it wrong. Genesis also provides a powerful beginning for the moral and spiritual education of the reader. In this study, we will read through and discuss this book with that in mind, asking not only the question, what happened, but what does this have to teach us about what always happens in our lives today? How do the many beginnings of Genesis provide abiding moral and spiritual instruction? And as we begin this study, I'd like to, to highlight a basic rule for reading and interpreting the Bible, a rule that I learned from St. Augustine. Augustine himself was endlessly fascinated by the book of Genesis. In fact, he actually wrote three separate commentaries on this book, and he referred to it and wrote extensively about it in his book, The Confessions, and in his great work, The City of God. And if there's one thing that Augustine understood well about this book, it's that Genesis is not always easy to understand. For instance, what exactly does it mean when it talks about these days of creation in Genesis chapter 1? What did Adam and Eve gain exactly from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did God create human beings to procreate as husband and wife rather than in some other fashion? Augustine puzzled long and hard over questions like these. And sometimes, sometimes over time, he questioned whether his interpretation of a specific passage was the correct one. But he also recognized that the purpose of reading the Bible is not simply to identify the correct interpretation, to get the right answer. No, the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to us, to make us more and more like Jesus. Or as Augustine puts it in one of his writings, the fulfillment and end of Scripture is the love of God and of our neighbor. I mentioned that at the start of our study because I recognize that as rich and rewarding as this book is, it's also a book that tends to provoke disagreement and controversy among Christians. And that's okay. We, we can disagree with one another. 
But as we read and discuss this book, we should keep Augustine's insight in mind. If our study of this book fails to promote a greater love of God and our neighbor, then we haven't read it rightly. Also, if we can't agree on what Genesis means, but we can read and study it in a way that makes us more like Jesus, well, then in that case, we've still done a good thing. Okay, well, there's a lot more that I'd love to say by way of introduction to this book, but instead of doing that, I'm going to just jump right into the first opening chapter and what it tells us about the creation of the world. There's a famous German philosopher by the name of Martin Heidegger. He once said that when it comes to thinking about the universe and the meaning of life, there is no more important and no more basic question that you can ask than the question, why is there something rather than nothing at all? And in many ways, you could say that question is exactly what the opening chapter is answering. Genesis is telling us why there is anything at all. And the answer it gives is rather straightforward. In fact, it's right there in the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is not a product of chance, nor has it simply always been, nor, nor is it the result of some kind of divine sexual union, mating, or violent battle among the gods, as some of the culture surrounding ancient Israel believed. No, the reason that there is something rather than nothing is, according to Genesis, simply because God created it, because he gave the gift of life and existence to something outside of himself. And that brings me to one of the topics I'd like to focus on in this first session. There are a lot of things that we could discuss in this opening chapter, but what I'd like to focus our attention on is what it says about God. The Hebrew word that Genesis uses in this first chapter to name God, it's a fairly generic one. Elohim just means God. But don't let that generic word fool you. This is no simple generic deity. And that's important. Remember, all throughout the Old Testament, the main problem that people face is not whether or not they believe that some divine power created everything. Everybody in the ancient world believed that. The problem is always which God they believed in. And already in these opening chapter, Genesis is teaching us what is special and unique about this particular God. So what do we learn here about this God? Well, the first thing that stands out is that this is a God of unimaginable power. It's something that really strikes you if you compare this account of creation to, to some of the Babylonian creation myths that were around during the time when Genesis was written. Much like in later Greek and Roman mythology, the, the gods in these Babylonian stories, they had to struggle and fight to bring some kind of order to the primordial chaos of the universe. But not the God of Genesis. He doesn't struggle. He doesn't fight. In fact, he needs to do nothing more than speak the world into existence. 
There's a repetitive pattern to the days of creation. On each day, God says, let it be. And then we're told at the end, and it was so. What's more, this God is not only supremely powerful over creation, he's also supremely wise. Later Jewish writings, such as the book of Proverbs, speak very directly about God creating the world through wisdom. And the New Testament tells us that God created the world through Jesus Christ, the Son, who is himself the wisdom of God. And even though Genesis chapter 1, even though it doesn't actually speak explicitly about wisdom, it does testify to the fact that the God who creates does so with, with care and intention and purpose. There's an order and a structure to the days of creation. On the first three days, God forms and divides creation into light and dark, sea and sky land and plants. And then on the next three days, he fills each of those, those realms with sun, moon, and stars, then with fish and birds, and then finally with land animals and humans. So what we learn about God through these six days isn't that he needs time or that he just can't do it all at once, but that he is wise and purposeful in how he creates. Maybe more than anything else, though, what Genesis 1 teaches us about God is that he is remarkably good. One of the things that stands out about some of those other ancient myths I mentioned earlier is that they tend to suggest that the reason the gods create the world in general, and human beings in particular, is either because they just can't help themselves or because they need something. Either they're they're driven to produce in the same way that people are driven to make babies, or that these gods are kind of forced to create by some kind of need. But again, the God of Genesis isn't like that at all. He doesn't create out of compulsion or out of some kind of need. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 and ask the question, why does this God choose to create anything at all? The only real answer you'll get is that he did it because he wanted to and because to do so is good. In fact, that's the verdict that he himself gives at the end of almost every day of creation. He, he sees what he has done and he blesses it by saying that it is good. Of course, this story of creation has a profound effect not only on how we think about God, but also how we think about ourselves and the world around us. Well, let me say something briefly about each of these. First, what does Genesis teach us about ourselves? Well, the, the six days of creation culminate in the creation of the human species in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. These two verses have probably received more commentary and more discussion over the course of Christian history than almost any other two verses in the Bible. So obviously there's a lot to be said about them. But for now, I'd just like to make a couple basic observations. First, According to these two verses, human beings are radically unique. 
We are alone among all the beings of creation in being described as the image of God. And that, that has some far-reaching consequences. First of all, it means that whereas all of creation is good, human beings have an inherent dignity and worth that surpasses every other creature. Later on in Genesis 9, God forbids the killing of human beings for this very reason, because they are the image of God. And for Christians, this historically has been the reason that, that they have insisted that every person, regardless of ethnicity or ability or wealth or health or IQ or even morality, regardless of any of those things that we so often use as markers of personal value, every human person has the right to be treated with dignity and to be defended from unjust harm. Every male and every female is created in the image of God and therefore is a being of infinite worth. But when Genesis talks about humans being created in the image of God, this isn't just a statement about their worth. It's also a statement about their purpose. Why did God make us? What is the purpose of our lives? Well, Genesis answers that question right in this first chapter. God put human beings into his creation for a reason. They are made to serve as his image within the created order, which means that, that we were made to, to be mirrors, as it were, to be visible reflections of who God is and what he is like. Later on in the Bible, in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are told that they have been set apart as a nation to be holy as God is holy, and that by their lives they should bear witness to the character of God. Now, Jesus himself picks up on this theme in the book of Matthew, where he tells his disciples to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect, and, and also tells them to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is a running theme throughout the Bible. The people of God should imitate God in the way that they live, and by so doing, they should show people what God is like. But as it turns out, this isn't simply the vocation of Israel or of the church. As it turns out, this is the purpose for which human beings were made in the first place. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them who God is, what it means to be human, it's, it's all right there, right in the opening chapters of Genesis. And finally, in this story of creation, we also learn something very fundamental about the world around us and our relation to it. In 1967, a professor of history at UCLA, a man named Lynn White, he published a very influential article in the journal Science, an article entitled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. But White was very concerned by what he saw as the exploitative modern attitude toward the natural world and the way that people use the world around them in nature simply for their own purposes. And the roots of that attitude, he said, they go all the way back to the book of Genesis and to the way that Christians have latched onto that statement in chapter 1, verse 28, where God tells the man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, 
to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over it. But what Genesis is suggesting, according to Professor White, is really that nature has no other purpose than to serve human interest, to be controlled and exploited and used for whatever humans want. And that's exactly the problem. We treat nature badly, and the fault lies with Genesis itself. Well, like I said, that article ended up being very influential, and the basic thesis has been repeated many times since. But the truth is that as good of a historian as Professor White may have been, he wasn't a very good reader of Genesis. For the declaration that humanity is to rule and exercise authority over creation, it doesn't give humans license to do with it what they want. All throughout the first chapter, God affirms the goodness of creation itself. He, he blesses it. He gives it its own value. And when he tells the man and woman to exercise dominion, he isn't saying, well, do with the land and plants and animals whatever you want. He's telling them that they are to steward and shepherd creation, to serve as his own representatives, guiding and shaping it in ways that reflect God's own purposes. In fact, if you read carefully, you'll notice that God doesn't even give them permission to eat the animals until much later after the flood. But that, that's all for a later lesson. For now, what's important is to notice that the God that we meet in the beginning of Genesis, this is a God of infinite power, wisdom, and especially goodness, who creates human men and women to serve as his representatives, to guide and cultivate the good world around them in ways that reflect his purposes. That's, that's how the Bible begins. And that is also the essential place, the beginning place for us if we want to understand who God is and who we are and what we're here for. <laughs>